only girl from my college and I'm a strong, I'm the, one of the top students here at ISC. I can go to MIT and do my PhD and instead, you know, I'm seeing this ad and I want to know why, why can't I apply? And she didn't know the address to send it to. So she just wrote GRD Tata Bombay. <laughs> so, and shockingly, it reached him. It reached him. In fact, on the Tata Sons website, they have this story of my mom and the Tatas. Oh, wow. So GRD Tata must have then called the managing director of Telco and saying, hey, there's this, there's this firecracker in like uh, IISC, call her. So she was then called for an interview. And my grandfather was very angry at my mom saying, what did you do? We are small people. You wrote to the biggest man in India, foolishly shooting your mouth off. Hey, Rohan, thank you for agreeing to do this. Look forward to the chat. Hi, Viral. Hi, Mazin. Awesome, Rohan. So we'll start with our curveball question. Uh, it, it really sets the pace. <laughs> uh, what's one truth few people agree with you on that you believe? I don't have one truth uh, necessarily. I think I have a few truths from different phases of my life where certainly at the time, nobody really agreed with me on. When I think of my life in college and during my graduate school days, the truth, I guess, in some sense, that I felt very strongly inside, but I could never convey it to anybody sufficiently well outside. And therefore, everybody just thought I was just not really utilizing time well, was this incredibly deep passion for programming that I picked up when I was very young, uh, to the extent when by the time I was in sixth standard, I was writing parts of an operating system in C. Um, I was writing fairly, I would say, even by contemporary standards, fairly advanced code. And the implication of all of that was for the first time, like I was like some random kid who had no skill sets, no friends, you know, like when we were in school, no? you, everyone wants to be good at something, debate, drama, cricket or something or studies. I was not good at anything. Suddenly I felt, hey, this is what I'm really good at because I was a lonely kid. I was a, this was a medium for me to be able to express myself. Um, and I don't think many people around me understood or valued this. Well, sixth standard meaning... 1994, so, so some time ago. <laughs> wow. So, so my truth was, this is my medium of expression. Anything I felt emotionally, if I felt angry, I used to express it in my own work, my own code. Uh, if I felt joy, I used to fee feel that joy in expressing it in my work, in writing code, in solving problems that at least I believed that nobody else really, you know, were as interested about in or and so on and so forth. Um, and so that, uh, and everybody around me instead just thought this guy is just a bad student. And these are all excuses for being a bad student. Right. Um, I had, uh, board exams. Maybe this is not a good, good idea for people to replicate. And I completely blew them away by just, cause you know what? I was more worried about how do I get packets of data to stream across a network? in such a way that I could play a, in DOS, those days, no Windows, uh, I could play a, an animation, animated video hosted on one machine, but streamed across the network on another machine. There's no TCP internet, none of these. So literally right. everything from rendering it on the screen, all the way down to how the packets are sent over the wire, I had to worry about. Now, why should one worry about this in the middle of their board exams, right? I mean, we all understand the vitality of board exams or the vitalness of board exams. I don't know. I can't explain it, but I just felt this was something I had to do. And it was always like this, everything. And, um, nobody really understood. 
nobody agreed uh, nobody understood or agreed with why this was important for me and maybe i didn't even care to explain it to anybody so this was my truth when i went to college my truth was including my advisors in college my own parents my father tell me i'll fail out of college for sure because my very first semester first year i was taking phd courses because i had gone to college and i felt at cornell i felt hey a lot of these undergrad classes this kind of material i've already done by myself in high school uh, and i wanted to compete with people who i thought were learning even harder things and were even more advanced so i was taking phd courses in networking and my advisor said i can't sign off on this and nobody even that professor taking the course said yo man we don't take first year undergrads in these kinds of things but again like i didn't know how to explain and i just felt no i'm i know what i'm doing i know what i want to do but to me i was not trying to do anything to prove anything to anyone i just knew what my truth was my truth was i knew computing fairly well and i was fairly confident and i actually wanted to feel like i was in the deep end and struggle a bit and that even if that happens i'll be okay uh that's probably my second truth my third truth came when i went to do my phd um by then i had developed enough confidence uh, that you know my phd advi- my undergrad advisors i'd been admitted to a few schools i got into a few and i did not get into a few i didn't get into one and i really wanted to be in boston because i have family there having spent four lonely years in ithaca during my undergrad very cold place um my sister was at stanford so I had an opportunity to go to carnegie mellon or you know berkeley and these kinds of places uh very good schools but um i ended up choosing to go to harvard in boston and again this was something that i couldn't find anybody who agreed with me in fact that own that professor with whom i went to work at harvard he himself was surprised that i was going there because it was not as well known in computer science as a department Hmm. um yeah. it's a much smaller department compared like carnegie mellon carnegie mellon mit berkeley and probably the big powerhouses you know right. carnegie right. mellon had 120 150 faculty you can literally study anything you want with like anybody you want and if that person goes away you have 10 other people like that everybody said hey you want to be a professor of computer science this seems to be the worst possible choice you can make given that you have these other possibilities you can exercise but um in my mind the truth that i believed was i'd gone through all of these other journeys uh where i had worked on things based on my instinct not based on my age or who where i thought i should be or this or that instead i made the decision based on where i thought i would be emotionally happier and i was i thought okay if luck swings my way a little bit it's okay uh i'll learn by myself i'll work hard and i'll figure it out on my own And so the truth i believed in was i somehow believed that yes the environment plays a role to a certain extent but also if the individual maybe stretches excessively in some way they can make up for lack of all of these other wonderful things um and uh, probably it turned out okay in the end uh um and so on and then the final truth that i believe in is that i at least when we started there were not enough people who believed in it and i think there are a few more people who believed in it there's a science for many things in the world there's a science for how you make cars there's a science for when i mean science i mean there's data there's a methodology there is measurement there is basically measurement there's a feedback loop etc and so on um but there isn't a science for how, how all of us when we go to work 
and offices use software to get our work done, whatever we may do, banks, insurance companies, etc. There is no science for any of it. People don't think of this as a data problem. People don't think of this as, people don't even think I have a right to expect that this can be done differently or better. And the world thinks that this is all largely based on opinions and this is all, you know, I've heard people say, oh, white collar work is very different from blue collar work. I don't know what any of those things means. Work is work, man. It just means that we haven't figured out how to convert certain kinds of work into a data problem, into a scalable data problem. And they're not, and, and I've had people tell me things like, this is science fiction, this can't be done, this, that, whatever, you know, random things like this. But the unshakable belief that I have uh, is that how we all experience work when it comes to an increasingly digitized world um, is as much a data problem as pretty much anything else. Um, um, these are probably four truths. Sorry, I don't know if this is too long an answer, but... No, it's uh, it covered a lot of aspects of your life as well. And I think for me, like one takeaway is uh, your truth matters eventually the most as well. Uh, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate that context. Um, they think that other people's truth is supposed to be their truth. That's also a takeaway from all your truths to me. Ah, that's a that's a very wise observation. But that can also give one the impression, right, that, hey, only my ideas matter. I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, in some sense, communicate that. You know, it, it's when I was young, somebody told, told sort of read this or wrote this somewhere and I read this somewhere. I never understood it. I understand it better as I grow older. So, oh, you need to have the courage to do what you believe in. I'm like, oh, right. what does that mean? Right. Oh, I absolutely get it now. Yes. Right. Now, and sometimes you'll get it wrong as a result. And that's okay. You have to live with it because that's the part of the courage, right? Like, okay, I listened to my instinct and I got it wrong. But hey, you know what? Okay. I'll at least figure out next time. Maybe I will take an additional input from a few more people and be willing to revise my hypothesis a little bit or something. Yeah, I think courage is something that actually very few people truly have. And I think your observation that courage is so important uh is an important one as well um i don't think people appreciate the importance of courage and um its impact in a lot of things that actually move the needle in the world so yeah. um i i think every entrepreneur is is courageous by definition in fact yeah i mean uh, it's entrepreneur and not just entrepreneur i think there are so many people who in different walks of life who demonstrate courage on a daily basis in what they do, right? Like, I mean, I have tremendous uh, respect for people in military. Uh, and somehow in India, I don't think we, we the, in the public imagination, there is, there isn't sufficient value mm. for them in the way that I hope for there to be, right? I mean, talk about courage, right? Like, that's the ultimate courage in some sense. We all sleep soundly at night because a set of people and their families, not just them, right. their families, who actually have courage. Um, I mean, I say that so that it isn't the sense that only entrepreneurs have courage. No, uh, entrepreneurs have yeah, absolutely right. It's um, but being able to follow your um, your instinct, your heart, and being okay to fail—that's one form of courage. Um, and sometimes people are not in a position where they can they can afford to do that. By the way, and sometimes. People can, uh, so on and so forth. So it really depends on the context. 
See, also in my case, I've been very fortunate because I grew up in a household where both my parents are incredibly bold and courageous people. Now, of course, everybody thinks highly of their parents. I, I, I you know, sure, my parents also have, you know, upsides and downsides or positives and flaws. But the thing about courage is, for example, my mom was the only woman in her college to study engineering. But he tried to dissuade her back in the day and said, no, no, you know, don't do engineering. Uh, no one will marry you. No one will marry your sisters also because they're in a smaller town. They told my grandfather who's a doctor in a small town, you know, you should have some sense. If you let your daughter study engineering, no one will marry her. Uh, and the college principal itself said, no, we don't even have women's bathroom. Like you talk of this concept of lean in. My mom was leaning in like in the 70s in this way. <laughs> And she's like, okay, then I'll walk home. And to her, as soon as someone says, you can't do it, okay, then I'm going to do it. Mm. You know, why? Why is this a man's domain? right? And then from there, she topped her class, went to Indian Institute of Science, was a very strong student there, then got, was admitted to her PhD in the US, I think at Maryland and MIT, back in the 70s in computer science, which is again, not common, but was not allowed to go because you know, girl going far away, that's the kind of concerns in, my, in her family, I guess. And then ended up, I don't know if you folks know, but in a fit of like, what the hell kind of a moment, because Telco, now Tata Motors, had come to recruit at at IISC and said, women need not apply. And she was like the best student. So she's like, what the hell is this? So she just wow. wrote an angry postcard and saying, oh, the Tatas have done so much for India. They started IISC, you know, in 19, prior to 20th century, I think, or maybe early 20th century. And this and that. So how can you be so regressive in your thinking? And here I am, you know, I'm the only girl from my college and I'm a strong, I'm one of the top students here at ISC. I can go to MIT and do my PhD. And instead, you know, I'm seeing this ad and I want to know why, why can't I apply? And she didn't know the address to send it to. So she just wrote JRD Tata Bombay. <laughs> so and shockingly, it reached him. It reached him. In fact, on the Tata Sons website, they have this story of my mom and the Tatas. Oh, wow. So, JRD Tata must have then called the managing director of Telco and saying, hey, there's this there's this firecracker in like uh, IISC, call her. So, she was then called for an interview. And my grandfather was very angry at my mom saying, what did you do? We are small people. You wrote to the biggest man in India, foolishly shooting your mouth off. You know, I, I can totally understand. And... She's like, I don't know if it would reach him, but they said women candidates need not apply. What the fudge? And, you know, and so on. Anyway, so she showed up at the interview and they're like, yeah, you know, and all of them were like, this is the girl, you know, this is the girl. And they said, look, madam, the reason we say this is not because we don't think women this, that. First, we don't have bathrooms. And my mom's like, don't worry, I've dealt with that problem before. <laughs> before. Second, this is all problems on the shop floor, heavy lifting, this, that. She said, what do you think? I did better than all in the same courses, doing all of the shop floor work, everything at ISE, better than any of these other men. Why can't I do this? And she said, look, at some point you guys will have to change, right? And so in the end, they ended up giving her, a, her the job. My grandfather told her, look, now you can't go to MIT and this and that and all do your PhD because that means you did all of this just to prove a point. No, now you have to take the job. Otherwise, you did all this natak just, just to, you know, make some noise. So my mom became the first ever woman engineer in Telco's history. And I suspect in Indian, in Indian mm. industry. Uh, uh, 
and her whole life i mean then there are more stories like this so i grew up with a woman like this at home extremely like why 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 can't this be done okay this can be done and i'll do it and to do it with positivity right. i never fear yeah. or this or that and same thing with my father um in so many regards right one of the first few entrepreneurs came from family of 10 kids my grandfather's a math teacher no money no vc no nothing and nobody had ever built it's like what somebody once explained to me he said oh until your father came along we the world believed that india exported basmati and poverty <laughs> oh i didn't think of that framework and so he said the most important thing your father demonstrated was a bunch of like a nobody coming out of india could create something that the world could respect that came out of india right and and back then right like to be successful you have to be born successful it was this recursive logic hmm. uh, and what he ended up doing i mean his thing was oh there are lots of very smart educated kids in india with them i will build stuff for the world and by the way the second is i also build software in a way that is deep deconstructed it's not all built by one team sitting in one room it's built you know across teams it was the industrialization of software really right which right. was an interesting new concept and then to do it out of india like his earliest pitches right once he was showing me some yeah, some old text he used to first show the map of the world and circle this is a country called india this is our history like he used to first in, forget pitching any service or company first you have to pitch the country people be like yeah i saw it in indiana jones and like no no that's not it you know that's like really offensive that's not we don't like eat snakes or some shit like this in that movie right he's like in on the contrary we actually have a lot of educated people uh, english educated people good in mathematics we can write software this that um and to stick with it right like seven or eight years into it like it had gone nowhere because the country itself was huge risk and and the other risk at the time was to say hey i want to create a company that is run professionally um india's fairly feudal society there was no professionally run or hardly any professionally run companies it's all you know family run companies correct and i'm not trying to claim one is better than the other i'm just saying that's what it really is right again my father is this staunch socialist inside so he was like no my family is stone most of the company and he's like no that's not what i believe in i'm going to build a company where no one will own any such thing why did he do it there's no need to do it because he just felt no i want to do a new paradigm okay and everyone is like my mom is telling me she's like oh people used to think business is like a dirty word pay bribes and this and that that's perhaps how some people had run businesses so he made it a principle that okay i'll build the most respected company that will never pay a bribe those are all innovations as well by the way <laughs> in the right. indian context right so a guy who's like and he was 36 all his colleagues were like 21 22 23 um fresh out of college right like they didn't really know as much and he had everything to lose he had two he had a family two kids uh he was diabetic and why should he believe he will succeed when nobody before him had ever succeeded in our country in our context um incredibly bold and it's not just him he did this with my mother's help and they went down the path seven years and then seven years later everybody else all his colleagues wanted to give up there's an offer to buy them out for a million dollars and you know everybody wanted to sell out and he believed look again unshakable belief that no there 
the tide will turn and when it turns it will turn in their favor and he managed to he played some poker i guess and said okay i'll buy the guys <laughs> out uh, he didn't have a single cent to buy anybody out by then uh, but everyone saw okay this is the older guy this is the founder and if he has belief maybe we rally around him and so they all stuck and it's not bad 80 billion today so <laughs> not bad yeah and highly profitable and actually more than anything i think has changed middle class of india as, mm. you know so i grew up with these two examples uh every day at home and i don't know what it is but it is uh, perhaps and and these two examples very close you know so uh easy to grow let me not say easy easier to grow up with that un, that belief that hey you you believe in what you believe sorry maybe i just went on you can edit no, it no, so. fascinating story about uh courage um and and i think um infosys probably made bangalore i know we were having this conversation off the record as well uh but their choice of city uh eventually gave birth to this very large ecosystem of i am a part today um i don't think it bangalore as a city could have started it was a pretty sleepy town i know you're from there um but because of infosys and the other pioneers um a lot of technology started to be built out of there and i think you know those are the ancestors of the tech companies that are in bangalore today yeah and also uh, the way it was built built in this egalitarian fashion see if it was built in a way that that nobody else could relate to right it was so i always had asked my dad oh what is the important lesson from all this and i used to think when i was younger he would say oh market cap this right or profitability because that's something he's always they've been profitable since day one and because they had no option mm. and so my father is like very um, um got strong views on that and he would say the most important thing is i want people to take away is like hey if this like random guy who came out of nowhere with a whole bunch of luck he's like no there were other people smarter than me but i just and also worked hard the difference perhaps is luck with a whole bunch of luck and a lot of hard work could do something meaningful then perhaps many others can also and i think it's you know societies and people change based on examples and belief right uh, right that that perhaps and that became relatable and that's why i think you know as to your point of you know the a whole generation of young entrepreneurs and companies all start with the same beliefs right hey maybe even i can do it this guy could do it hey even i can do it perhaps a good segue to talk about your story can you walk us through the early days for soroko how did the company come about what were your early kind of ideas and how did that change sure sure um so you know i was an academic back in i finished my phd in 2011 at harvard and then i spent a year at mit as a postdoc and i went back to harvard and i was an academic there um in a certain setup um and see i actually come from a fairly academic family uh, my father is ironically the only black sheep in our family my mother taught computer science for a long time uh, my mama my mother's brother is a very well known astrophysicist at caltech um i think he has a world record for the most number of papers in nature um uh, and he's like my hero my entire reason to want to be a professor is him my mom's uh 
uh, elder sister is a professor of medicine in Bangalore, um, etc. and so on. Similarly, on my father's side too, there are some academics. My grandparents' generation were teachers. So the family business was to do, to be in academia. And because the heroes in the family, the topics of conversation, everything, the obsession, like if my uncle, his name is Srinivas Kulkarni, Shri. If Shri comes to town, or like we call him Shini Mama. So Shini Mama comes to town, man, like even my father, my father is the one time he'll come back early from work. And what this Shini Mama says is like God's word in our family. Like, you know, he's a professor, he's a professor at Caltech. I think a lot of us here in our families, we have behaved the same way, right? And uh, and in all family gatherings, we would say, oh, Shini has come, Shini Mama has come, you know. Uh, my father is a distant second or third place in all of that. Uh, and and my my own father believes that too. So therefore, I wanted to be an academic ever since I was young. I never questioned why. I thought you just grow up in that atmosphere, listening to it, so you also do it. The first time I think I began to question it was really when I was back at Harvard in 2012, 2013. Like, what do I really want to do? Do I want to? And somehow inside me, I started to feel, for me, what I'm talking is my choice. I didn't want to really be in academia anymore. Um, I didn't feel for myself that I wanted to do something where I felt I could have sufficient impact. And not to say academia can't. In fact, I have friends who are still in it who have wonderful impact. It's just for each person what they believe, right? Somewhere I I didn't feel the same energy anymore. And I felt, no, I want to build. I love building things. I like writing things and creating things. I want to do something that people will use. Um, and so... Uh, and there are many ways of achieving that. And one way is I thought, oh, maybe then I'll, I'll find an idea that, um, you know, people want, I'll build something that people want to use. But it turns out that was probably the wrong way of approaching it, by the way. So when I spent a year at MIT, I had a wonderful advisor there named Hari Balakrishnan, who I really look up to, one of my personal heroes. And he was actually very encouraging. He's like, hey, explore, do whatever you want. You want to write some papers, write some papers. You want to go explore some company ideas do whatever you want like i'll support you so i was like okay i'm on a mission i'm going to find a company idea so i'm like okay day one how do you find a company idea so i go online i read news articles i make some notes okay so because the research way is the way you do research is you read like one paper or five papers or ten papers and yes as you start reading some papers in some area you start to see hey maybe there's a gap here there's a gap here and what happens if i like do this that's one way okay uh, so I tried doing that, but that got me nowhere because all that happened was for like several days, I only read the news and I didn't really pick up anything else. Um, because again, I was trying to basically find an idea in vacuum in my case, that's not going to work. Um, then one of my friends was trying to do some startup. It was a one man startup. So I, I told him, yeah, I'll come help you for free. And maybe I learned something by helping him. So I did that. But I wasn't really motivated by his problem. But whatever, I did that for a few months. And so finally, I gave up. And I was like, okay, I, after like a year of not figuring anything out, I was like, okay, I'll just stay in academia. So that's why I went back to Harvard. But somewhere inside, I was like, look, that bit has flipped. It's just a matter of time. So while I was there, I started to spend some time with friends of mine who are in different companies. Some who are in Infosys in India, some are in Accenture and various companies. And just to understand what do these guys do, what are their challenges, and so on. 
and I didn't go into it. It's really like Brownian in motion. I didn't go into it saying I'll find a problem. I just went into it saying I just want to learn. And if I don't find anything, that's also okay. I don't have that. Earlier, I had that angst. Oh my God, I've spent so much time. I wouldn't find a problem. No, I just wanted to learn what's happening on the ground. And as I was doing that, the thing that immediately struck me in every case was, and for example, at that time as well, my father had been called back out of retirement uh, into Infosys to fix the company, and, it, and they'd lost their way a little bit. Um, and so I'd spent some time there too. And what I found was. Um, across the, all the different companies, right, where I spent some time. And I spent time on the ground. I was not as interested in, hey, what do these high-level meetings happen? Everywhere I kind of see uh, patterns of work where I keep asking, oh, why is a person doing this? Surely a machine can do this. Like, why, why, why? And perhaps I didn't have sufficient business context as to why people were doing it. But in my mind, I'm like, hey, computing is far more advanced than this stuff. So why could a machine not do this? Um, and to cut a much longer story short, and I remember, <laughs> I will not take names, and I certainly will not take a company name, a friend of mine who ran one part of a company, a very senior guy, I spent time with him on his floor, and I remember explaining to him, saying, literally what you're doing on this entire floor, a machine can do, and there are thousands of people here. And if I were you, like, I'd be aware of it because you have a responsibility to all these people. And he got very angry with me. And he just he yelled at me saying, this is the problem with ac academics like you. You guys only know theory, this, that. I was like, man, that's a very trivial way of dismissing me. But what I'm saying is true. And I, and he was, a, he was running a BPO company. And I said to him saying, you, you, you're my friend and I'm your friend. You can curse me as much as you want. But you're... Like, the writing is on the wall for this man. And that's when I realized, look, all these large existing companies will not really change their fate easily because their business models are fundamentally predicated on time and motion studies. Uh, oh, sorry, time and, time, and, time and material contracts, right? Like, you know, the more people, the more time. So you will, they will never, or they will not change easily. It's hard, hard for them. And it, by the way, it's not there. Just look, every business, right? Like, when it's successful one way, you've, you're seeing other instances in the news right now. Very hard for them to suddenly accept there's a different reality. So I went away and I realized, hey, I can take all of this work I've done in distributed systems and so on. And I can basically build a framework for building automation at scale. That means um, the kinds of things I can do are um, I can automate not just one small bit of work, this is before automation became a fancy buzzword. I'm talking 2013, 2014. Okay. Um, and instead, how do you, you can literally automate an entire end-to-end -end department. And to do that, you needed more sophisticated computer science. You can't just do it in some Excel macro type of thing. And at the time, there were these small companies that were not yet famous um, that were building RPA tools. And RPA itself was not a category. Uh, robotic automation but i've seen their tools and i felt hey those have a legitimate place they'll you'll probably automate some small slivers but the technology was not new it was not differentiated and it couldn't really solve the magnitude of the problem i wanted so i didn't want to small so automate a sliver i wanted to automate the entire end-to-end -end thing then i realized oh with this i can i know how to do that because i'll bring to bear all the years of research and so i called one of my closest friends from my phd days 
named George. And George and I were friends from our time at Microsoft Research. We were PhD interns there. Um, when I was doing my PhD at Harvard, George was doing his PhD at Carnegie Mellon. And um, I'd known of George even before I met him because I used to use his, his he was the one of the key developers in the new radio uh, open source platform. It's a software-defined radio platform. I used to use for my research. I saw it be like, wow, this George Nietzsche's guy writes really nice code. So when I finally met him, I had a small fanboy moment. It's like, oh my God, I use your code. You write so well, kind of a moment. Um, so I called him and he had finished his PhD from CMU and was with the Valley. He's a very soft-spoken Greek-American guy. And I was like, hey, George, I think all the work you and I and others have really done, we can basically go and build these amazing distributed systems that will literally subsume entire departments and companies. Um, and so George got very excited. We had one great three-hour conversation. He was working in the Valley at the time. Um, and... Uh, you know, he's like, great, sign me up. He, so I said, let's start between Boston and maybe India or something. If you can talk about your initial vision um, and what you were from a philosophical level trying to do, because I think that's very fascinating. Philosophical perspective was, how do you automate any kind, how do you automate any kind of piece of work that's done in the office, whether it is small or big at any scale? That's all. Okay. Now I'll tell you there was a flaw with that. And, and that flaw was fixed subsequent to what we do now. And my friend Arjun and others would ask, why do you want to do this? And the truth is, I didn't know why, except I just thought technology was cool. Okay. Because, I mean, look, you can give the obvious arguments around efficiency, right? In saying things like this. No, you'll achieve great efficiency. But the problem in saying all that is that is not really a human need. Right? Like, why would anyone go to work every day saying, oh, wow, today we're going to try and automate this entire thing. No one's going to feel that. We'll be like, oh, my God, it's a scary thing. Right. Um, I not realized that. To me, it was just a technical vision. Like, okay, there's this other companies who are doing this small chutput automation, um, slivers of automation. Then, oh, here we will, like, automate anything at any scale. That was all there was to it. It was, and I was like, I know all the computing techniques to doing this. And by the way, we were fairly successful with it because to, uh, you know, very early on, we got an introduction from one person to another person to another. We started working with very large Fortune 500 companies because we'd go to these companies and we'd tell them something that they found unbelievable. And then we'd say, okay, then let's show you a demo. Let's do a pilot. Within three months, you will see. And the first couple of pilots that we did with some of we had like Fortune 10 customers. The first three, four by sheer dumb luck and perseverance and persistence, um, we managed to get the first ten, first three to be amongst Fortune, Fortune ten, Fortune twenty companies. And in every case, right, it was this like one of each one of automation systems would run in the cloud would be on like 50, 80, 100 VMs. They'd be coordinating and they'd be completely subsumed this entire end-to-end work. And and suddenly the organizations ability to, you know, increase throughput for certain kinds of transactions, um, redeploy their people in doing more meaningful things. Um, all of that changed. And, and so, you know, with that initial success, we just thought, yeah, this is great. This is great. You know, because it feeds back into, 
your belief, oh, this is exciting. This is the reason to do it. Who doesn't want efficiency and this and that and so on? That, that, that's quite helpful. But right. maybe if you can just add to that and, and give us an example of how you explained it to your first few customers, because it's a difficult proposition. Like you said, you gave us that example of your friend, right? If you tell people, okay, I'm going to automate stuff that people do, it's like, oh, are you going to, you know, eliminate thousands of jobs and, and you get those kind of reactions. So how did you go about explaining it and convincing people to the pilot, I guess, the first few customers? Yeah. So I'll tell you, our customers didn't have that question. Actually, we had that question. We were like, what is the emotional, what is the emotion to this company? That's what, like my, my friend Arjun, he's a very smart, intelligent, emotionally intelligent guy in, in that way. And he would keep asking this, make me and ask us this, what is the emotional purpose for us? And the truth is, we didn't know in the beginning. Yeah, okay, you were technologists, basically. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and later on, when we come to what we do now, you'll see it's a 180-degree turn. Um, and in fact, that perspective completely changed what we as an organization did. And so we just, and our customers didn't have any issues. So to your, our very first pitch, you know what our pitch used to be? I, actually, I'll tell you how we recruit our very first, you know, apart from the three of us, uh, the one, the first one or two people. So George went and contacted a bunch of his CMU PhD Janta friends and like, yo guys, I'm doing this. So a bunch of them came. Okay, great. <laughs> the boss of office. I, after age 17, had not studied in India. I like, I didn't, I had not worked in India. So I was like, okay. So I started out. So in the same day, we started an office in Boston and, and in India and in London. So I'm like, okay, I'll go. I move, I semi moved to India, not full time. I'll recruit people. Now, we didn't have a website. We had no customer. We had nothing. So, uh, I was like, okay, we found some random job board somewhere. We just wrote, Harvard, MIT, CMU grads seeking to do technology company. <laughs> Who wants to join? That was literally all that we wrote. Um, and we got like some 10, 20 kids who came and we were working in a house in Bangalore. And, you know, and the doorbell would ring and some kid would have shown up like, Hey, I saw this thing on the job board. I'm like, wow, okay, people actually read this thing. Because again, I came out of academia. What did I know? Uh, and uh, and so we would um, interview these guys and so on. So our very first um, colleague who joined us in India, who's still with us, uh, really phenomenal guy, uh, a sharp guy, graduated from IIT BHU. Um, he showed up and we had a lovely time. And we also, our interview was like crazy. So we gave him a problem. So I used to give these informatics Olympiad problems because I'm like, yeah, that's the obvious ones to solve if you want to join this company. And he solved it. Then I was like, oh, not bad. Let me give him another, another. Became an eight-hour interview with him. Just, just sitting and just asking him question after question after question. And he must have felt these guys are some ultra nerds. I'm saying this as a highlight of we have a bunch of technology people who didn't really know or appreciate other aspects of perhaps what it is like to build or run companies. Okay, so we just said, we just want to find other nerds like us. That's it. Um, and so we were six or seven people. I remember the very first prospect, right? Um, through a friend's friend, we got a chance to go pitch. This person was based in India, a director of finance. Um, and our pitch we had nothing really to show. So our pitch was just that here are the kinds of people we have and here is our vision and we want to do a pilot. That's amazing. Okay. And we'll, because what else do you have? You have nothing to show. Right. Right. And, and 
I'll tell you, it was purely, I mean, there's so much luck involved, right? And so this man was very nice. He said, okay, tell me in my finance function, what are the kind of things? So we said, look, for example, and we gave him examples and we had done our homework. In your finance function, we said, look, if you take this entire, like we, 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 we had also done some ferreting around. Their goal was there to onboard. They'd been given some crazy goal. Hey, you have to onboard uh, 12 times, 11 times the number of vendors in the next 18 months. Okay. And okay. so we said, look, so yeah, you know, yes. and we said, uh, yes, for that, I'm going to increase my staff by this much and blah, 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 hiring by this much. So we're like, yeah, that's exactly what you don't need. <laughs> and do a pilot with us and we'll help you achieve that goal in less than half the time. That was our promise to him. So that, you know, because we learned to articulate the value of our technology in a context that meant something to him, a business outcome that meant something to him. Right. He was willing to listen to us. Um, and so what he did was, he's like, okay, let's go to my HQ in the US and talk to folks there. We went and repeated the same thing. So after like maybe one or two months of doing lots of meetings, presenting, presenting this, they said, okay, we'll do a pilot, but we won't pay you for it. We said, yeah, no worries. You're just six or seven people. We're like, do anything. Because we're like, man, maybe if you impress these guys, they're nothing there. Um, and we took on exactly this problem. So um, basically what would happen is we had built this core platform, George and I, and uh, my my colleague Arjun and one of our young engineers were on the front lines. They were trying to sitting with, in their office, trying to understand their problem, trying to understand their business context. And there's another engineer actually building on top of our platform. And I, and George was, as we were building, he was, we were recognizing our platform as these problems. So he and I were like running to closing the gaps in our platform. And we managed to automate the entire thing and achieve that scale. This was an incredibly complex system. It had like 400,000 lines of code. We built it, deployed it, scaled it to 80 VMs. It was running on 80 VMs in about seven months. They hit actually 15 times the number of vendors. And that's when they took us very seriously. In fact, what they did was they computed, this is how much of effort you have saved us. I mean, this companies that are growing, right? They just redeployed their people to doing all kinds of other things. Right. So it right. wasn't job loss and so on, right? But they out they computed the immense savings we gen, generate for them over eighteen month window, mm -hmm. and basically paid us a chunk of that money. And overnight, we had like a lot of money. We were like, "What?" We're like, "Oh my god, this is great!" And of course, mm -hmm. life is never as simple and as linear as we thought, right? Um, and so we had a. That was really how we got our first break. And then we used this break to basically go to other companies. And we were like, hey, yes. Mr. Fortune 500, yes. you know, we work with these people. What we did. Yes. We'd love to do a free pilot. And we knew the drill, right? Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how we got to it. And you mentioned that, you know, that's what you started with. But over time, it evolved. And now it sounds a lot more different. So, so how would you describe your company? I'll come to that. I'll tell you how we got there. So as we kept doing this, right, I think... We very quickly, we had a lot of growth. We had a lot of customers. In fact, um, we we were cash flow positive. Today, we are not because we invest very heavily in our product and we build other products. But, uh, but somewhere along the way, we realized saying, I think what we did not do a good enough job 
be honest, was to label or brand what we were doing is how is it a different kind of automation? Like the kind of automation, the kind of savings and outcomes and scale and speed and so on we could achieve, you could not achieve with the other class of like this, you had these small bots that people could build and these were not even in the same class. There's a very different kind of automation. Um, and we didn't realize that early on, like, hey, we need to brand and I'll connect all of this to what we do now. You'll see there's a deliberate reason why I'm talking about things perhaps could have done differently or better. Because sometimes our customers be like, yo, guys, this is a different class of automation, what you're doing. What do you call it? We didn't even have a name for it. Because they were like, in fact, I remember a procurement guy telling us once, I had a Fortune 500 client, a customer. He's like, listen, call it something. Otherwise, you're going to treat it like this other thing and pay you lower prices. Because you're producing very different business outcomes. And we didn't really think, oh, that we should do this. We should market it this way. Then we should go to analysts, research firms, explain this, that. We didn't think. You're like, oh, okay, fine, whatever. Um, or maybe failure of our imagination. I don't know. But somewhere along the way, the thing that we realized was increasingly, right? We go to companies and they'd be like, oh, I'm in 190 countries. I have 100,000 people. Where should I start? That would typically be one question. Or we'd see a lot of companies already trying to automate. A few years into this journey, we go to new prospects. They're like, yeah, I tried automation and this didn't work. We're like, why did you try it on this? Oh, my experience told me to try it on this. And we're like, what? What is your experience really mean? It doesn't mean anything. Um, or we went to another customer, uh, another prospect where they were like, oh, I hired this XYZ famous consulting company and they gave me a report and told me in that report, you can automate 70% of your work. I'm like, show me that report. And I read it. I'm like, with all the computer science that I know in my life, this number, you should take the square root of this number. That's the best that you can achieve. They're like, what do you mean? No, no, this is a fam famous consulting company. I'm like, man, I don't care who told you this. Whoever wrote this down for you does not know computing. And they don't know the limits of what computing can or cannot do. So they're telling you to automate things that are just not possible. Not yet. Not yet. And so you are basing all kinds of crazy strategic decisions based on somebody's misaligned perception of what automation can do. And you're not going to produce any of these business outcomes. And so when we started to debate, discuss this, right? We were like, guys, it seems like even if you talk about automation, there's a bigger problem. What the heck is going on and whether something should be automated or not? Let's answer that question. And so one weekend, okay. So I, I started to like build some small prototype thinking, oh, as I do my work, if, you could, if I could capture the interactions I'm having with my machine, and I'll anonymize it so I don't need to know who's this person. But from that data stream, could I reverse engineer the underlying structure and flow of work? Because my thought was, if I can do that, I can then maybe guess using this data automatically whether your work is automatable or not. And so something led to another is tinkering around with this. And then I sent an email to my colleague saying, guys, I think I have a prototype or a demo where I can actually do this. And they got very excited. Again, all technologists, right? And so we sat down together and I showed them a little bit of something. Um, and one thing led to another. And once we happened to mention this to one of our existing customers and they were like, oh, this is not possible. This is all science fiction. It's not possible. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm glad you told me it's not possible because I want to demonstrate to you it is possible. So we ended up signing them up as an early customer. And our goal was, can we deploy a piece of software 
that will learn from the interactions that humans and machines are having. And by learning from those interactions, it will reverse engineer the underlying structure and flow of work. And basically, we'll produce a graph, graph in the computing sense, right? Or a map of how work's happening. And, and they were like, yeah, man, this, and the customer told us, I remember this meeting, they're like, this sounds like mind reading. I'm like, no, it's not mind reading. It's not as fancy as that. But it is about trying to find structure in our work. And our hypothesis is that in all human machine interactions, there's inherent structure. That's like the new idea that we had developed. And once you produce this map or this data set, you then run analytics on this data. And then you say, oh, with these patterns, I know you can automate. These patterns, you should definitely not automate. That's what we initially started the idea with. At the time, there's nobody who's even remotely thinking this way because this is a damn hard problem. And I remember George and I sitting down in our own company. People didn't believe it was possible. Many of our young engineers, they're like, oh, you know, we are not some fancy PhDs to do this. I'm like, guys, this has nothing to do with any PhD and so on. This is just about trying to figure out, you know, we have to solve some fundamental problems. We have to sit down and reason from first principles and solve them. Um, and then as we started to do this in the early days, it was very rough and we were doing this to be able to sell the automation. Huh? Uh, it was very rough in the sense that it would give it oh, some very general idea. And then we would go on the ground, talk to people uh, and then they give us feedback. This is pattern is not right. No, you have misunderstood this pattern and so on. And what we very, but we very quickly adapted and learned and learned and learned. And um, <clears throat> what ended up happening as a result of all this was, um, you know, we took it to a few more customers that we were already working with. And then our customers taught us saying, hey, not just automation. What you can actually tell me is you can first help me understand what the heck is going on today? Because usually I think work is happening one way but actually it's happening some 50 other ways that I didn't even anticipate. So, and, and based on that, now you can tell me, you know, Hey, do I need to train my team, etc. And so on. So basically we realized that this data that we're trying to excavate has far more value and uses to enterprise, to managers, to teams in a way that we had not anticipated. It basically becomes, it, it's sort of like first time somebody invented, like, let's say like a, like Google Maps, right? People thought, oh, I'll use this for driving directions only. And then people were like, yeah, but I can also use this for hotels, tourist attractions, reservations, restaurants, flight bookings. I can basically do so much more with it. That's what we began to realize. Thanks to our customers, they would all start pushing us. Hey, this data, you can tell me this. Can you tell me that? Can you tell me this? And we were like, oh man, like this is fundamental. This is no longer about trying to find pipeline and opportunity for automation only. Rather, that's only one part of it. This is something that's much more important and fundamental. Um, and Rohan, and can you give that uh, example, that data point of the number of interactions at work and on social media? It's a yes, fascinating, yes. fascinating example. And if you could also like elucidate with say sales, let's say you map someone's Salesforce interactions, what actually happens? So uh, that will really sure. help. Sure. So what we did was... Um, Again, all of this was like year one, we realized these things because we could immediately kind of prognosticate what this needs to be about as our customers certainly pushed us. See, there, there was a debate as to what is our data source? And we were clear that the biggest mystery and thanks to our automation days, see automation days, we had worked very closely with customers on the ground 
in processing centers and this and that. And we used to constantly see this to be a big mismatch. The manager believes something, but the team experiences something else. Okay. The manager is like, yeah, I only do things one way, our team. And the team's like, man, we're doing it 50 different ways. The manager is not accounting for all of these other issues. Okay. And, and so on. But there's no data to prove any of this. Right. And so we realized that the biggest mystery in office work was the last mile. Okay. That is the interactions between humans and machines. Because what we saw was last 20 or 30 years in computer in, in the computing industry, there were solutions where people have a notion of a transaction, right? Like I have a database. So my company has done so many transactions in insurance. So, okay, based on these transactions, it took me so much time for a transaction. Why is it taking longer? Blah, blah, blah. Or people would look at some, this is very old tech, log files of some, you know, uh, SAP and one. You know, that's why you produce log files, right? To actually see some transaction, not just to debug, to also see some transactional information in it and so on. So people had been looking at that. But what we realize is, hey, that's only that's a systemic view of how work happens. Right. And that's that's like in the 90s. You want to figure out how to optimize your website. You'd go look at your HTTP web server log file and be like, hey, how many get requests, how many put requests? And there were people who built hundreds of solutions around this. And 2000s, Google came and said, yeah, you want to optimize your website? Drop this thing in your website called Google Analytics. It'll just see how you interact with your website and it'll tell you how to improve your website. In some sense, our viewpoint was like that, but inside enterprise. Because nobody was thinking of that last mile. So we realized unwittingly, we the structure and everything that we we're talking about came from understanding the last mile. And that was really the fundamental leap and technical leap that we made was to say, if you could capture that last mile of interactions between humans and machines. And by the way, we don't want to know who the human is. In On day zero, we were clear, this will never work because we were also clear this was a machine learning problem. You can't do this without machine learning. Um, which means that if I just say, here is a person named Aviral and here's his pattern. It's too little data. We need millions of points. You're not going to get that with one person. You need it. And so we naturally had to aggregate it to level of a team. And so how does a team interact with software? And then we can really start to get into it and discover patterns of work that affect the team. That's what we originally had the idea on. So then, you know, we were like, okay, is there enough data to do this? So then I'm like, okay, let's just go measure it. So when we went and measured, right, how many times do we interact with, with software to get our work done? Um, what we found was that, I mean, I'll tell you this amazing stat. So if you take the top six, you know, where else in the world do you actually measure the interactions, right? Actually in social media, right? You take the top six social media sites on the planet and at least, you know, looking at their, some numbers you can find online, Put it together roughly if a person were to on average use most of these six sites every day which i don't think anybody really does right guys but let's assume they do on average they would do about 40 interactions a day i liked something retweeted something uploaded a photo or do whatever else and so on and in some sense that's what they monetize here when we all go to work every day and you know we all do office work right uh, i mean i keep saying office work i mean anyway work where you use software to do your work Turns out the data that we measured is each one of us on average does 2,800 interactions a day. Like that means, yeah, we are generating a data footprint that is 70 times larger than the social media footprint that we are creating every day. And think about it. Social media companies beg and plead and say, Hey, come on, man. They entice you to have, you know, they, they care about DAUs, right? Use me for even a minute. Use me for five minutes, right? Do something with me every day. 
But we naturally go to work every day for 8 to 10 hours or maybe 12 hours in some cases. I don't know. And we're naturally interacting with software to do our work. And when doing those interactions, we're generating this enormous digital footprint. It just so happens that nobody's seen that digital footprint as a source of data and how to like do something with it. It's almost like it's, you know, it's like dark matter, right? It's there. You can't see it yet. Right. And so I, when, when I measured it, I'm like, look, guys, each person in the enterprise is doing 2,800 interactions a day. Let's just roughly round it up to 3,000 interactions a day. And assume or 2,800 times roughly 250 working days in a year is 700,000 interactions a year. Okay. And if you have a team of 10 people, 7 million interactions a year just for, just for a team of 10 people. I'm like, guys, what is a bigger data source, man-made, human-made data source than this? I actually don't think there's any other data source that's human-made. Data about astronomy data is larger, but that's about nature, right? So that's why I don't include that and genomic data. Apart from that, this is the largest human-made data set. We are all creating this every freaking single day. This is year one of this idea or year zero, I should say. Like to us, right? Our mind was blown. We're like, oh my God, like what we have stumbled onto is not some, some, hey, I'll write you a script and I'll sell you some piece of software kind of thing. They're like, and think about it, right? Like for all the kind of work that we do, there is no data, there is no science, there is no rigor, there is nothing that actually tells us this is what's going on. This is how you can make life better. The best bet that we asked, then we went and surveyed all our customers, right? And we realized, see, if we had not done that automation journey, we wouldn't have realized these things because we had seen the tremendous disconnect on the ground between what management thinks versus what happens on the ground, right? Or what pain people feel on the ground versus what management thinks is the pain. And we had seen the lack of data. We had seen the over-reliance on gut, on experience, on instinct, and so on. And we were like, man, and the extreme reliance on interviews and consultants. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm just saying it's incomplete. For 40 years, we have relied on, okay, I have 10,000 people. I'll interview 10 people, 20 people and give high-level gyan, change this, change that. And we were like, no, dude, basically what you can do is you turn that entire thing. The, you turn the art of office work into a science of office work. You turn into a data Yeah, th there's nothing like this, right? I mean, there's Six Sigma and manufacturing and Toyota and others have pioneered. I think uh, office work, which is the interaction with software like you defined, it needs protocols and it needs methods. It's like you said, dark matter, completely opaque. Um, I think somebody needs to build. But, but it is, you know, Aviral, it is more than Six Sigma. I'll tell you yes. why. Yeah. Right? Six Sigma is about efficiency of a certain kind. Right? Or do you, it's like, do you follow? Do you follow a religion? Do you follow a ritual? If you follow the ritual, this is the natural outcome. Let's yes. just take the nature of you know of like office work. See, in a manufacturing plant. Let's say, Aviral, you're a cheeky guy and you're like, man, I don't like the sequence in which this assembly line is running. Okay. I want to uh, paint the car before I assembly or uh, paint the parts. Right. Right? That's what you decided. It's hard. You can't just unilaterally go pick up. They're all heavy. Right. So right. You can't. The, the degrees of freedom are far more limited and the order is set. Right. Okay? But now when you come to office work, the thing with software is the good and bad is it's completely loose. Yes. Okay, maybe I'll send this, I will do this bit first, or I will do this bit in this other weird way than this other way that I was told to. You have yeah. far more degrees of freedom. And the consequence of that is the variance and the way in which work happens is inherently just far more diverse. Right? 
Um, and that is one. The second is it is not just about efficiency, right? The second thing now it comes to your you philosophy. Know, yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I'll tell you guys this one very visceral story. One of our customers, okay, we went to work in a processing center in the automation days. Head office, they got some fancy consultant. Tell them, ah, you can automate this much, so on. From there, they just pushed down the target. And this center had a few thousands of people. They were under tremendous pressure. They were really nice people who had worked there for a long time. Don't know any technology, at least to this extent. Some head office has sent some number, achieve it. And they're like, hey, you have to help us. And I have seen people, in, you know, we went through months of like this stuff and people break down under stress because they, they're so stressed out because somebody in head office said this has to happen, but they don't know what technology cannot, cannot, cannot do. And, and we saw, what we saw clearly was head office's understanding of work in this center versus what actually happens is why worlds apart. And in fact, that target was wrong. And these people have no, how do they respond saying your target is wrong? There's no data, there's no information, nothing is possible. And that kind of stuff st stayed with us. So what we realized, right? Like when we realized that, hey, we can tap into all this interaction data, we can produce this thing that we, we created called as the work graph and all of this stuff. We realized that, hey, there's a second and very, very important truth of this. And that is the emotional reason as to why this is necessary. In my opinion, it's more important than efficiency reason. Efficiency is all important, but that's, to me, it's the emotional reason that's more important. And that is today, all managers everywhere, to a certain extent, fly blind. Work is increasingly more digital, right? As you digitize it more and more and more, and you're doing some remote and distributed this, that, and so on, you don't really have a very good sense of like what is going on in your teams and what is affecting your teams. And second, from an employee perspective, right? There are two aspects of work, what you actually control and what you do not control. What you control are a set of things. Okay, maybe I do this, I do this. What you don't control is you're told to work on a process. If that process is broken, you can't do anything. You have to just follow it, right? If your technology in your company sucks, you can't really do anything as an individual. You have to just follow it. If you don't have access to good training or mentoring, you can't really do anything. You have to just live with it, right? And just like whatever, adjust. And no, no. despite not controlling many variables that affect one's work, um, people have to get stuff done. And so what we realized was if we tap into the interaction data, it just effectively it is speaking to the experiences that people have at work that they often don't those experiences are a product of variables they don't control right. we can actually bring that to light with data and we can say hey your the productivity of your team is low or can be higher because you have not trained them well or you have there are a set of variables that you the organization control your people don't control but if you influence those, your people will have a more positive experience. They'll be more successful. And that's how you lead to higher productivity. Suddenly, you've created a more incentive compatible way to think of the world. It's no longer about, ah, you, you know, Aviral, what did you do? Why did you do this? You know, how many bathroom breaks did you take? Why the hell are you away from your desk? No, I'm not talking about that. Instead saying, where can you be empathetic to how your people are experiencing work? See, it's like when you go to a website, right? And the analytics, the Google analytics, basically what it's doing is it's saying, oh, it took this person 20 clicks to buy a product. That sucks, right? That's why they'll probably buy less. It's, it's trying to create empathy for the customer's experience in using some product or some website and so on.
why can we not have empathy for how our people inside companies experience work absolutely absolutely i i i think i think that there's so much nuance in what you've said uh, which is not knowing what someone is doing like you gave the bathroom example but understanding how teams are experiencing work it's a paradigm shift actually from a mentality standpoint and and and, and it's an it's empathy you can have what does it mean to have empathy for a person to have empathy for a person is to is to see the world from their lens particularly over things they don't control if something bad happens to someone they right. don't control it right then you feel bad for them like you have empathy right. for them right in some sense you are having right. empathy for your teams means the team doesn't fully control it and yet are subjected to it what are those things right uh, and effectively this interaction data yields that insight and you can use that to drive change now and that right. we realized was an extraordinarily powerful emotion for us for our customers again the end result is all productivity but can you do it in a way that your people will care right and awesome. that is vital yeah and you know when as we realized this through the year we're like man forget all this automation stuff or any of these other things there is nothing more important than this according to us first this is an insanely large data set this data set there are 500 million office workers in the world the world spends 15 trillion dollars on them approximately huge and there is no data there is no science for helping these 500 million people be more successful at work none absolutely right i'm like okay second the way we can actually solve this problem is by empathizing with how teams experience work so now every day when i wake up i know what i'm doing what i'm doing is i'm trying to invent technology that attempts to empathize with how people experience work in the end goal of improving productivity it's an incentive compatible way absolutely and you know the, think... some of the biggest champions of our work today have all been end end employees and our customers they're like man hmm. you know we keep telling our managers like this this implementation of this sap thing is horrendous or or oh, our workflows are broken in this way this is not how we should be doing this work and instead is fixing the root we are just told work longer hours and just get more done like you squeeze more out of your people by you you acknowledge your work is broken but you just make them do the same broken work faster you say don't go to the bathroom as much or do whatever and so on instead just work fast instead what our thing is doing is no here is the root cause issue this is how it's slowing your people down So if you invest in fixing this root cause issue, here is the end result: how your business will gain and your people will gain. That is the value of this insane work graph that is being built every single day on this very call. We're building this work graph. Yes, right? <laughs> absolutely. And once we realize this in the first year of the Scout thing, uh, we call this platform a Scout, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And we realize we are building this work graph. uh and you know and by the way there are two parts to it one is building this graph right and then building products on top of the graph that utilize this graph and give you different kinds of you know insights and help you drive different kinds of change think of it as the analogy is like you build windows on top of windows you build apps right uh like that what we got tremendously excited by was see then i felt like hey look we are not going to succeed in doing uh automation product and this and this one was like very young and early and the roadmap was unclear and so what we did was we said okay let's satisfy three or four customers 
and we will learn by by any means necessary like let's make them happy in this space with this data then we will know that there's some truth here so year zero was just about doing that and it went really well and then we realized hey man we are on to something that is really original and there's no company that's doing this the best that companies had ever done was to do silly things like time and motion studies oh you aviral spent one hour in outlook uh, you mazin spent one hour in excel they will find you name you shame you okay that's what technology is used right. for so we're like man screw this mm. right the fundamental innovation that we had done and i'll come a little bit to the technical parts and i think you know people may be interested to hear about it um was to change the conversation from identifying an individual and talking only about how that individual spent time to aggregating your team and to converting the conversation to sequencing or sequences and variations in some sense i'll give you an analogy in the 1950s you went and got a blood test done you took a drop of blood they would tell you oh you're not well because they would measure the relative concentration of compounds in your blood you have so much sodium so much this too much sodium cut down salt right but then when people invented dna sequencing the fundamental today all of modern biology and medicine is about dna sequencing and sequencing 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 right why does this piece of uh, uh, this medicine work for viral not for mazin or whatever things like this ultimately it comes down to variations in our sequences right mm-hmm. and effectively what we have done is we have we have invented the equivalent of that dna sequencing but for office work and that is a huge technical leap that has taken years of r&d absolutely right. and what that does is it changes the nature of questions and conversation the whole empathetic stuff comes out of this so now we can say things like how many different ways is your team achieving the same goal where is the variance why is there variance right right uh, as an example now you can ask more and more such questions so um then we decided and you know this is a tough call you have one business which is cash flow positive it's quite strong mm-hmm. and then you have the second business but but automation also you know space got crowded you have to you have to do a lot more and so on and so what we realized mm-hmm. was the scout thing was even bigger than our, like anything else and anyway you only do automation as a downstream thought after scout right so we decided to pivot and to really turn ourselves into a scout first or scout company into a workcraft company and then the second thing we realized was this is a new emerging space and we literally have been the first people to stumble across it and we didn't want to make that mistake of not naming it and not working with industry analysts and so on and so forth um and so we started that journey as well so this is basically what we do today we are a workcraft company we build scout um you know and this tap into untapped data and use that to basically drive how people and teams experience work differently and the ultimate goal of changing productivity income amazing what what a fascinating uh, discussion rohan across your personal journey uh, your family and what you're building i think what you're building could change the way we do work um just to close out our final question uh, which is why we call this podcast founders unfiltered what's one piece of unfiltered feedback you've got um in your journey as an entrepreneur or even before that changed the way you looked at things um i can give you i get lots of feedback and regularly but the one that you know is probably brutal honest also <laughs> like like this conversation no, I'll tell you. you know before I, at least for me i started the company i used to think what would be toughest about building a company is the technology Hmm. Today, I, 
the technology is the easiest, easiest thing. I, I don't even worry about it. I mean, so for example, we use, so, you know, in 2018, yeah. we started using transformers. Same thing that's at the heart of ChatGPT, right? Liberty, correct. Um, we use transformers at the heart of what we do. We are basically applying transformers to like work sequences. So we use right. a lot of machine learning. All of these are actually quite straightforward. I mean, mm. sure, there are nuances to them, but I, I'm not trying to diminish them. What is perhaps more important, harder, and it depends on how one views it, um, is the ability to take people along, to keep people motivated, to keep people aligned, to keep people excited, to keep people looking forward. I think that, to me, um, is infinitely more important than almost anything else. Because it's, uh, I have a lot of analogies of how to think of young companies. Particularly if you have a young company that wants to create a new space, right? Um, young companies like that typically resemble, in my opinion, early religions. Every, mm -hmm. you know, when I was a PhD student, I used to study in the divinity school on the side as well. Right. Uh, you have a lot of religion analogies. I have seen that through the conversation <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, uh, Every new religion, by definition, has to say something new and disruptive to all existing religions. Otherwise, why should it be a new religion? You're just saying the same thing as the old religion, right? Um, and it has to almost say something heretical. It has to say the old religion was wrong and here's a new way, right? Mm. And therefore, by definition, the, every new religion that, you know, is in some sense persecuted, the early, the beginning, the early followers are persecuted or not enough people believe in it. But the early disciples become really important. And eventually, you know, through some luck and this and that, eventually maybe it survives, right? Um, in some sense, young companies are like that. You See, and I, again, I say religion is, you can give certain logical reasons up to a certain point. After some point, it becomes faith. Um, right. Down to me in my life, I've only had two opportunities where I felt if I don't do so, I'll regret it. The first was the key problem I worked on for my thesis. The second is this work graph. Beyond a certain point, I can give all logical reasons. I can tell you 70 times and this and that. It's faith. Right. right. Beyond a certain point. In the early days, you ultimately transform that faith to out business outcomes and say, look how much revenue we grow, how many customers we have. You've done all of those kinds of things, but it's still faith. The thing I keep telling my colleagues is, look, our destination, our journey is to completely change how people in offices do work everywhere until we change the lives of 500 million people our journey is not done right now do i know how to get there we don't know how to get there but that is you know you figure out next step next step and so on yes so um uh and in that journey taking people along keeping them motivated keeping them excited keeping them aligned that to me is been the most important learning i, I to me it is single-handedly the most important thing compared to anything else we have done like if we didn't use transformers in the early in our journey instead of some other we used a convolution neural networks would it have been a disaster i don't think so maybe sure maybe our results would have sucked a little bit more eventually we would have figured it out man because you are the right people in place they'll figure it out right, right? so to me that's probably the this was not received as one point of feedback but rather what i have learned on this journey at different points by making different kinds of mistakes hmm. you know i've seen when 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 people believe then they have that religious belief right like 
it compels them to go above and beyond anything that they personally believe in in their lives. Uh, amazing, amazing, right? So that's possibly. See, you know, when you uh, academia, often people actually don't really realize it this way. It becomes so. Yeah, I, I, it's, academia is about so much about my idea is right, and therefore it becomes about ego in a certain way. Correct. My idea is right, your idea is not right. This that. And you are also spoiled for choice because if you're at like a very good university, you have everyone in the world applying and you pick on, you know, you get to decide who comes in and so on. But the real world is far more diverse, far more heterogeneous, right? Different people, different backgrounds, different life experience, different hopes, different expectations. How do you take all of them along? How do you keep them excited? How do you keep them motivated? And that too, in a journey like ours, right? Like, and I tell people regularly, like when we interview people, I'm like, hey, listen, man, you want to do a nine to five job? Don't come here. Not because this is better or worse. We are not in that phase of our lives. We have a certain vision. We have a certain ambition. We don't. We hope we'll be successful. God is kind to us, and we work hard, and luck swings our way. And that is, you know, we want to create this new space, and we're the first company here, and we want this to impact everyone in the world. Now that's very hard, right? It is extremely hard. And that requires immense dedication, immense passion, immense hard work, immense sacrifice from everyone involved. And there will be a core set of people who believe, who have that religious fervor in that way. We have some people in our company who joined us for in their eighth semester internship. They were not, they joined mm-hmm. as intern, they're not yet even graduated from college. They stayed with us like ever since then for a few years now. And these, I mean, they among others, you know, so many others. Just never lose hope. Never lose faith. Even on the toughest days, they're like, no, how do you get up and how do you keep moving? Right? And so, building that kind of a culture, a creed, um, right, I, I think is, um, in my opinion, your experience has been amazing, the most important learning. Thank you, Rohan, for the chat. Uh, really loved it. I think it went over so many different uh, diverse topics. Um, I, I do think our listeners will enjoy Thanks. Thanks a lot, Rohan, for doing this with us. No, no, great. No, thank you for inviting me.